I want to share an extraordinary journey with you. Just before the world changed with the global outbreak of COVID-19, I visited Australia and discovered that there's really no other country quite like it in the world. There's something truly unique that links Aussies together, a shared spirit and attitude that's created their lifestyle. Beyond the beaches and the barbecues, Australia is a land rich in culture, innovation and opportunity. Once travel becomes a reality again, it needs to be experienced to be fully understood. And I promise that it's a place that will stay with you long after your visit. Join me as I explore. Australia, a country envied for its warm climate, beach-going lifestyle and world-class food and wine. Comparable in size to the United States or mainland Europe, it's a land of dramatic landscapes from the bright copper hue of the red centre to the white sand and turquoise waters of the coastal beaches and the rainbow of piercing bright colours found in its native flora. It offers cosmopolitan cities, relaxed beach towns and outback communities where you can take yourself away from it all and be a hundred miles from anyone else. The rare privilege of a true escape. I'm Georgina Godwin, and for this series, Only in Australia, I visited every corner of the country to explore the unique nature of Australian luxury and to meet some of the country's creative entrepreneurs and ecotourism pioneers. I discovered a travel experience defined not by opulence and gold taps, but by immersion in wild, untamed landscapes and the innovative accommodation designs embedded within. By the chance to connect with the world's oldest living culture and by exclusive access to a distinctly Australian creative scene. On this journey, I'll share with you my visits to low-impact lodges. That really is a privilege for you, isn't it's it? It's amazing, yeah. yeah. It's a great, great thing to come to work for. My ride in the posh pit of a camouflage ferry... It is very much the vision and, as I said, the idea of David. But he has surrounded himself with like-minded individuals and a team of, of people that are prepared to push the boundaries and to, to take on these projects. And my experience donning a wig for the on-stage role of a prostitute in the opera La Boheme. Which colour would you prefer to put on as a prostitute on La Boheme? Definitely blonde. Blonde, okay, <laughs> all right. So we have beautiful blonde wigs. They are all finger-waved for the Boheme production. So let's try and see how it fits. This is very important that it's a good fit, so it looks natural on stage. Where else can you choose from over 11,000 beaches, explore the world's largest living organism, or get up close to kangaroos and quokkas. This is Only in Australia. We start in Sydney at Opera Australia, the performing arts company behind more than 600 shows every year at its home venues at the Sydney Opera House and the Arts Centre Melbourne, as well as everywhere from community halls to the Red Centre in the Northern Territory. I was taken under the wing of the wardrobe department, who let me peep in on rehearsals before heading up to explore the workshops. 
And we're just going up there in the lift, which is a little dodgy, so let's just <laughs> <laughs> let's just hope for the best. And we're off. The scenic dock is, um, it's a lovely industrial space with these big windows and we love doing photography shoots and so forth up there because it's nice and rustic. And we're here, I think. Um, Amelia Rose Simcock, scenic supervisor at Opera Australia. What's that sound we can hear in the background? Um, that is stapling of black wool onto a baton. <laughs> uh, we're in a really beautiful room. Can you just describe it to me? Um, so this is the paint floor, Opera Australia's paint floor. And currently we have three shows in here. Up the end we've got Piaggio. Um, and then in the centre there's cut cloths for Faust. And then we're just finishing off Ghost Sonata down here. Essentially, what you do here is make sure that every surface is covered in some way. We do, we do. Um, so often we're asked to reproduce marbling, brickwork. Many, many scenic techniques take place here on the paint floor. I headed off to meet the CEO of Opera Australia, Rory Jeffs. Opera Australia is the national opera company here in Australia, it kind of does what it says on the can, and we are the largest arts company in Australia. Uh, we are resident in two buildings, one is uh, in Melbourne, the State Theatre in Melbourne, and in the Sydney Opera House, of course, one of the most famous buildings in the world. But it's important to note that you are not the Sydney Opera House. Yeah, so the Sydney Opera House is a separate organisation to us, but we are the main resident company in the Opera Theatre, known as the James Sutherland Theatre. So it's the Australian Ballet and Opera Australia. We effectively take up pretty well the whole year in the Sydney Opera House. Opera Australia offers a really premium experience, or in fact a couple of them. Tell me about them. Well, obviously coming to see the opera at the Sydney Opera House, one of the most famous buildings in the world, is a pretty amazing thing to do in its own way. But what we also do is we provide opportunities for people to add on to that, to make it a truly premium and outstanding experience, which will be a memory for life. We have two ways of doing that. One of them is called the Opera Australia Experience. And through that, what you do is you come to the Sydney Opera House at six o'clock and sit down for a wonderful meal overlooking the Sydney Harbour as the sun goes down. And a member of our cast or creative team will come and tell you all about what you're going to see. And then you get two premium seats to sit in the stalls and watch a fabulous opera in the Joan Sutherland Theatre. But if you are not happy just watching an opera, there's also the opportunity actually to go on stage with a walk-on part. And that is really an outstanding and amazing thing to do, where you get a wardrobe fitting, so you actually get a costume, then you turn up, you come through stage door up into the green room, where you get makeup, you get a wig, and you get the whole thing to be part of the cast. And you get a rehearsal with the director of the show, who will actually show you what to do. You don't get to sing, but you get to go on stage and be able to tell your friends afterwards, you've actually performed at the Sydney Opera House. We only do 10 of those a year, so it's a really premium experience. And now to play dressing up. Georgina, can I introduce you to Stephanie, who's the head of the wig department? She's going to pop a wig on you and you can try a few colours and see what you'd like. 
So what we're gonna do now? Uh, which color would you prefer to put on as a prostitute on La Bohème? Definitely blonde. Blonde. Okay. <laughs> all right. So we have uh, beautiful blonde wigs. Uh, they are all finger waved for the Bohème production. So let's try and see how it fits. This is very important that it's a good fit. So it looks natural on stage. How do you make your wigs? So they are all hand knotted. So they are made on for the measurements of the performer. And so we are using human hair. It takes about 40 hours roughly to make one wig. Yes, especially if you like blonde hair. Blonde hair is quite expensive product. Do you think I suit being a blonde? Yes, very much. <laughs> Have you been blonde before? <laughs> Never been no. a blonde before. Oh, well, here's your first go. And you can see once you get all your makeup on and the costume, it's completely transformed you. I mean, you look nothing like you used to. I would hope so, as I'm now a <laughs> prostitute. <laughs> I then headed to Sydney Harbour to visit the Opera House itself and slipped into the backstage door right on the waterfront. I'm David Comans. I'm the Deputy Company Manager for West Side Story. Where are we, David? We are currently backstage at the JST Theatre. So we're in the um, costume area, so the quick change areas. So this is where we hold all the costumes for all the cast. So I'll come back here and do all the quick changes. Uh, we have a boy's side and a girl's side. It's very unglamorous at the moment. <laughs> but we should say that the JST Theatre is part of the Sydney Opera House. Absolutely. So this is one of, I think, three or four venues that live in the um, Opera House. I can take you on stage and show you where our props hang out. So you'll see um, our little props tables that we have here. So all actors who enter the stage who have a prop will come past, get their costumes on, come past here, grab any prop that they need and head around the side of the stage to their entrance points. Are you able to show us a dressing room? I can show you, yes. Let's see if these, anyone's in. We also have a musical director has his big office there that also has a piano and things in it. And we use a lot of these offices as, as dressing rooms as offices. So company management's here, stage management's around as well. More, Kate's probably still in there working. More beautiful views. Yes, we're yeah. lucky on this side of the building. All our leads have rooms on this side of the building, so you have the gorgeous views out to the water. That really is a privileged view, isn't it's it? It's amazing, yeah. yeah. It's a great, great thing to come to work for. <laughs> Fresh from watching the performance of West Side Story, I headed south to Melbourne and the National Gallery of Victoria, where I immersed myself in a dual exhibition of Chinese art and culture, past and present, China's ancient terracotta warriors, alongside an exhibition of new works by one of the world's most exciting contemporary artists, Tsai Goa Cheong, who uses gunpowder to make his art. He tells us he's used this method for the last 30 years. And what he likes most about it is the spontaneity and the unpredictability and that the energy it produces is visualised. I then made a valiant effort to see most of the approximately 75,000 works of art at NGV before meeting director 
Tony Elwood. The National Gallery of Victoria is actually Australia's oldest art gallery. It was founded in 1861, really at the the cusp of the the gold rush when Australia, in fact Melbourne, was at one point the wealthiest city in the world. And that wealth and the the multiculturalism that uh, developed in that community at that time also meant that there was this great interest in establishing a major cultural hub. It was a very ambitious community and it was forming great prominence in a newfound colony and therefore required, it thought, a museum, a gallery and a library. And it was very typical of that period. They did develop it as one major but rather ambitious entity. So the gallery from 1861 started to really say that it needed to form the encyclopaedic collection for this part of the world. And that's really then what it's continued to do right up until today. We're well known for our collections from antiquity right up through to contemporary art and design. So there's a great deal here that will appeal to the international lovers of art as well. Because we are so broad in our reach, and we are making sure we're reaching out to children, for example, in rural areas that can't afford to come here, we feel very excited about also being able to offer the other end of the spectrum, which is a luxury market that also says, when I travel, I want nothing but, um, you know, a tailored experience and something of great refinement. If they're coming all the way to Australia, they want to see why they should do that in this, this end of the market. We have beautiful elegant galleries that really, I suppose, show how we see the world from the other end of the world. So we have a very broad collection of European, Australian, Indigenous material that kind of merges together across our different galleries. And there's the opportunity to have private access, dining experiences, whether it's in front of our our amazing 18th century Tiepolo portrait of Cleopatra, which is considered one of the greatest paintings outside of Europe, or whether it's looking at other spaces that are of interest to particular groups. We want to make sure that the the luxury experience is something that people consider when they come to Australia, as we do the cultural experience. Very well regarded for our sporting prowess and our natural beauty, but actually we have a very strong, proud and sophisticated history in developing collections and cultural institutions. I left the gallery past the famous water wall, where rainwater is pumped from underground tanks and then cascades down the glass front of the building. The constant flow creates a natural filter between the bustle of the city and the calm seclusion and ambience of the gallery. Just an hour's flight south, leaving behind mainland Australia and arriving in Tasmania's capital Hobart, I took to the water again to get to my next destination, the Museum of Old and New Art, founded by Tasmanian entrepreneur and philanthropist David Walsh. So I'm on the ferry to Mona. David Welsh apparently wants people to approach this museum from the water, as one would have done in ancient times. Beautiful, sparkling day. There's snow on the mountains, and it's just extraordinarily beautiful. I'm in the posh pit, which means that it's all velvet furnishings and champagne. So Mona stands for Museum of Old and New Art. As the brochure says, it's the playground and megaphone of David Walsh, who grew up in Tassie, just down the road from Mona. Dropped out of uni, played cards, won, did some other stuff and opened a small museum of antiquities, to which no one came. 
he declared it a triumph and decided to expand. The result is Mona, a temple to secularism, rationalism, and talking crap about stuff you don't know much about. We won't tell anyone, says the brochure. Come and play. So inevitably, my uh, glass of fizzy wine is being filled up once again. So tell me what it is that we're drinking here. Uh, so this one's a sparkling Riesling. All the wine we carry on board the Mona Ferry is made out at Marilla. It's all made on site, all grown on site, and the sparkling Riesling is one of their uh, pride and joys, really. It's one of only a handful in the Southern Hemisphere. They've been making it out here since 2012. So tell me, you, you work on this ferry going backwards and forwards. What's your impression of Mona? Oh, I love it. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. I, I try to get out there every three or four months just to make sure I'm acquainted with everything that's going on out there. It changes all the time, so uh, it's nice to see the new things and old things, old favourites really. And I'm still seeing things that I've never really seen before. Is there something that you would say that the museum is about, if you had to sum it up in a sentence? It's hard to sum it up really, it's just about the experience. I think uh, it's, it's non-linear, so they want you to get lost, they want everyone to have their own experience, um, so it makes it really hard for anyone to really describe it to anyone else, one of their friends or anything else like that. Um, it's unique, yeah. And, and just finally, we're in the posh pit. Tell me about the sort of luxury experience side of it. Yeah, the posh pit's um, obviously as well goes along with the whole unique feel of, of the museum. It's uh, something not many other ferries offer, uh, uh, an opportunity to have a drink and, and some food on the way up in a nice posh setting. Um, it's, a, it's, it's just something we like to kind of offer so people really want to start off their experience the right way. I often say you can't really experience the museum unless you're a little bit tipsy. So yeah, it's, uh, it's good to get everyone in the right mood. So I'm just ascending the 100 stairs from the ferry up to Mona. There's a very clear definition between those travelling in the posh pit and those not, in that the posh pit people are slightly staggering up the stairs. That would not be me, however. Georgina? Yes. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you so much. You are... Led. Led. Yes. Guest attaché here at Mona, so just look after a few tours and uh, people like yourself. Let's go for a wander then. Uh, what we're looking at now is the James Terrell work Amana that was installed in 2014. And this is one of uh, five works currently that we own by James Terrell. This artwork only activates at sunrise and sunset. So it's currently not on at the moment, uh, but it will be getting turned on today at around five o'clock. It lights up, goes through quite, quite a nice colour spectrum uh, and goes for about 40 minutes. But we're just going to walk this way now because when we get in the museum, because it's all underground, it's quite easy to get disorientated. Whereas here, I can kind of show you where you're going to be walking in the museum. So this new wing that we're looking at now opened on Boxing Day two years ago, so it's about 18 months old, and that's kind of housed most of the works of James Terrell. And you can just see here where the original museum finished, and then this is the extension that we put on. We're now walking through the lovely Charles Ross room, which works with lights and prisms. I thought would have been a bit of bit sun. It should be quite nice right now. You can just see the vineyard here. At the moment, all this is Pinot Noir, but when David bought the property, there was the gateyard house, the roundhouse, and then the courtyard house, which is where the entrance to the museum is. Now, the courtyard house was designed by Roy Grounds, which is a famous Australian architect, 
and there's a listed building, but David kind of connected both the roundhouse and the courtyard house whilst building the museum. Whilst we're here, we can just see a little bit of the chapel by Wim Delvoir and my OG Spectra, which is the big light that we turn on for four days of the year, which shoots up a light, a beam up 13 kilometers into space. And we can only turn it on for four days of the year because it takes that much power. <laughs> so this is one of the, the few uh, pieces that was commissioned from owner. Uh, a lot of the artwork David just acquired and bought over the years, uh, but this is one that was actually commissioned uh, by a local Tasmanian artist as well. Um, so we're going around, it feels like a kind of maze uh, and the walls are, it looks a kind of grey. They have numbers, maybe is that coding or something on binary them? Binary code. Yeah. yeah, so it's a translation from Bible verses uh, into binary code. <laughs> we're just making our way into the centre. Um, we'll have to wait just for the people to come out. <laughs> if they come out. <laughs> if the kids. <laughs> we can go in. <laughs> and look up. Oh, and it's a mirrored ceiling. Strange. Mark Wilsden, co-CEO here at Mona. What is Mona, Mark? Mona's an idea as much as anything. It's an idea generated by David Walsh. It's a way of provoking discussion and discourse within the community, but it's also an incredibly exciting cultural destination and um, ultimately a tourism experience for many people. So explain to me if you'd never heard of it, what it would be. I mean, so I came here, for instance, on a ferry, very luxurious ferry, and, and came into this completely different world. It's not like any museum or art gallery I have ever visited in my life. Well, that's great. That's fantastic. Mona's a, a new way, I think, it, what has become a new way of exhibiting art and displaying or presenting cultural activity. And it's a way to... It's a thing to wander around and to, to discover, I suppose. So discovery is very much at the core of that. You know, the trip out on the ferry, which is quite luxurious, or you could be down at the back of the ferry and sitting on a, on a sheep and it could be less luxurious. But that sense of wonder and not knowing what is around each corner, it's, uh, you know, you arrive on a tennis court after you ascend from the ferry and then descend underground into a labyrinth of galleries full of noise and, um, and activity, including bars and restaurants. And um, we very much encourage our visitors to explore themselves and to, to engage in the work and engage in the experience as deep or as shallow as they'd like to. And core to that for the gallery experience is the O device, you know, the interpretive device that we offer people to download or to, to carry with them because that, that eliminates the need for us to put wall labels on the wall and we can light the galleries in the way we like and we can present art in ways that are, are less, less traditionally white cube. And, and I think that, that creates part of that atmosphere well and truly. I mean, it's completely elevated it to a, a different level and the fact that the O device, which I understand David invented himself, is something that you can then email to yourself so you can be reading about the art long after you've got home it will tell you exactly what you've seen and then you just remember what it is that you thought and for me what I was thinking a lot of the time was about being allowed the luxury of the space in between the exhibits 
of not being told what to think or why to think it, but being allowed that time to digest it and those slips of liminal material, perhaps? Absolutely, and I think, I think the architecture plays a, a very strong, strong role in, um, in the experience. Yeah, it allows everyone to, to wander, sometimes not knowing where you're wandering until you get there, and to experience things at a level and in a way that, that suits the individual. I think that's really important. And it also allows the individual to establish their own, their own opinion, and we encourage them to discuss that as they wish. And um, as you say, you're then able to, to uh, download your visit from the O and then delve as deep as you like into the, um, into the works and do your own research that you don't find you have to do when you're in the gallery where you feel that you might have to read a wall label. You may think you've not experienced the art properly and um, that's not the experience we want for our visitors. We want them to be free. Oh, we're just coming into a really massive space now. So now we're in the Nolan Gallery. So when the museum was getting built, David acquired this artwork. It's called Snake by Sidney Nolan. It's made up of uh, 1,620 individual panels. David had to pay for it to get reframed. And then this room was created around this artwork. Also, we have concerts here. So we've had this, uh, we had Queens of the Stone Age, Amanda Palmer. We have private dinners in here. This is where David and Kishi got married on the giant snake table. But yes, it's quite a large room. And Sidney Nolan, of course, one of Australia's most famous artists. Yes, this is one of three. So this is Snake, and then the other ones are called Shark, and the other one's called the Ocean Bed Floor. Uh, And they're all this large, just like I said, one of three in the collection. And I believe when they first did them, uh, they weren't overly well received. But now this is probably one of the, the most famous works that Mona owns. Mona is free to people under 18 and also people who come from Hobart, I understand. And anybody can access it. You pay and you come here. And Robbie Bramell, who is the uh, Director of Marketing and Communications here at Mona, is the person who's responsible for some extra special experiences that you can have here. Now, we were just talking about the fact that this is one man's dream, one man's idea. And actually, one of the experiences is to be able to spend time with that one man. Tell us about these unique, I suppose you might call them luxury add-ons, Robbie. I think it's fair to say that Mona does sort of dance to the beat of its own drum and that's reflected in the experiences that we want people to have when they're on site as well. So I suppose our experiences are quite different to what you'd expect from, from most galleries or most cultural institutions. So, for example, you have to arrive on a camouflage ferry and sit on fiberglass animals and drink in a posh pit with unlimited sparkling wine before you even get here. So that's how we guarantee people have a good time, that they're in, they're in good spirits when they arrive. And so we have an experience, like a, it's called a rock star afternoon, where you know it starts at 3pm and then goes late into the evening and people end up sort of weaving their way home in disgrace afterwards. So that's, David wanted the museum to be you know, the spaces to be invaded in in a way that you wouldn't normally expect in a cultural institution and, and having bars every 20 metres and restaurants and, and fun and interaction is, is part of that. So that's reflected in our experiences. So, yeah, the Rockstar Afternoon is, is one of them, which is an afternoon into the evening experience. We have also a, a large James Terrell collection on site. So David has a connection with James going way back. He even introduced David to his wife, Kiersha, so perhaps he's built it all as a, as a payback for that, as a, as a make-weight. So I think the, the largest James Terrell collection in the Southern Hemisphere and our full-on Terrell experiences 
means that you get to experience that over the course of 24 hours. We've got some luxury pavilions here that overhang the water, so that's, that's part of it. Again, there's fine wines and fine food involved and, uh, and a lot of art, so that's our, our full-on Terrell experience. And then and our third experience, by David's own admission, is the worst experience that money can buy. It's the dinner with him, dinner with David, and it's, uh, he describes it as appalling value. So it's, it's $50,000 per person. You have to spend dinner with him, and he's an awful conversationalist spends it talking about maths and astrophysics so so you have to endure that conversation the food will be good so that's you know Mona does a a great feast sometimes we make the tables out of nude people can't guarantee that but you know there's a lot of theatre involved with the actual the eating and the degustation and David has quite a legendary wine bunker that uh, runs about 3,000 wines deep so yeah the dinner with David is is two hours you can probably do without but then you get the best of what Mona has to offer and it's private jets and VIP uh, experiences around the museum. So it's, uh, I think it's fair to say we run the whole gamut of experiences here at Mona from a, a boozy afternoon to a, to a dinner with David. Mona left my head whirling and it wasn't just the local wine. It's a place I would have liked to have spent days in and would make the journey just for that gallery alone. Join me next time when I'll continue on a culinary journey of discovery. Australian wine and cuisine is a sensory smorgasbord of experimentation beyond fresh ingredients, multicultural influences and delicious surprises. I'll go foraging on the beach. Most people will look at that and go, OK, there's not much here, but we'll go over and have a look. There's some little purple flowers over there, um, a beech mustard, and then we've got some bower spinach or, or june spinach as well. So we'll collect some of those little succulents. I'll meet a woman who's established a whole network of fresh produce growers. I have had the privilege and the opportunity to meet some of the best in Australia, and they will be people that I will seek out. So we will often use products from South Australia from the Eyre Peninsula simply because they're the best and I know the grower. So it's about knowing what is really, really great out there and how it's produced and grown and the integrity behind it, the genuineness behind it. And visit a vineyard with a very bizarre added extra. And if you're looking straight at the building, the Darabin Cube, we can see a reverse perspective art piece where we can see the fermenters and basket press and whatever. And as we walk in, I want you to walk in as if you're drunk, going from side to side, and, and then keep your eyes on it, And because something really weird happens. So, so follow me, and so walk sideways. See, now keep your eyes on here. And then you notice how suddenly the front becomes the back. And actually at that point when that happens, you get a little bit dizzy. Which So not only did you look drunk, you actually felt drunk as well before you've even got a glass of wine in here. That's the idea. My name's Georgina Godwin and thank you for listening to Only in Australia. This podcast was brought to you in partnership with Tourism Australia. To find out more about some of the luxury experiences I've mentioned, head to australia.com.